When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Metal Mike, and in this episode of the 80s Glam Metal Cast, we talk to a guitar hero from the legendary band Kicks, Brian Forsyth. We talk about what the band has been up to in recent years, and classic albums like Blow My Fuse and Midnight Dynamite. Now this interview was done pre-COVID-19, so check Kicks' website for changes in their touring schedule. Check it out. Brian, welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. How's it going tonight? pretty good awesome so what do you guys have going on for this year you got some touring any new music what's up uh well yeah lots of shows <laughs> that's for sure yeah our, our agent is uh he's filling our calendar we get new um new dates on a daily basis pretty much so we're we're kind of booked up through the end of the year already but um yeah we do uh and it's not like you know the it's it's mostly fly dates, so um, which is cool because we fly out on a weekend, we do a show or two, and then we get to fly home. So we're home during the week. But um, so it's a lot easier than the old days when we used to drive around forever in a van. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how about new music? Anything on the horizon for that? Or um. Well, eventually, yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've all been working on our, our, our own ideas on our own, and, um, but we haven't had a chance to get together and, and put things together. But we've been talking about it, so, you know, eventually it's going to happen. We just need to find a, a gap in our schedule where, where we can put it together. So you guys released... Uh... Fuse 30 reblown a few years back to celebrate Blow My Fuse. You got to have some fond memories uh, of that era, don't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of like the peak. So when you look at this album, um, the, the remixed version, what can a fan expect different, you know, sound-wise from, uh, from this updated version? Well, um, well, the old version, for one thing, was... I don't know why it was really quiet. I remember uh, when I would listen to CDs, you know, I'd be at one volume, and if I stuck blow my fuse in, I'd have to crank it up louder because it was so quiet. And um, and also there was uh, back in the '80s, there was like this this style with the effects where they just pile on the 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 echo and the reverb, and it was all like kind of muddy sounding. So this this new mix well let me start at the beginning we uh you know we got Bo Hill to do it mm -hmm. and um and the initial mix was was Tom Worman so uh you know Bo was familiar with the record but when he got the when he got the master tapes he decided to not go back and listen to the record and, he, and just take the tapes and, and go through the tapes and see what was on them and then just do a completely new mix on his own, like his own take on the whole thing. So that, that's how it turned out. And um, 
so it's a lot. Uh, well, the volume is up to you know where it should be, and uh, and the, it's not all muddy, muddied up with effects either anymore. It sounds it's much clearer, and uh, like there was a couple spots like I never noticed it, so I put like headphones on and listened to it. Um, I'm trying to remember what song it was. There was an intro to one of the songs. It was so the echo was so out of time that. You couldn't even tell what was going on. It was like this jumbled mess. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, so, so the new ones, it's crisper and, and cleaner. And, and the and the cool thing about about the whole mix uh, that Bo did was, um, you know, there's a lot of like when when, when we record, I go back and I do my solos, but I'd also do like guitar fills here and there throughout the track, and 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 like Tom would pick and choose he just throw one or two in here or there and Bo went through and found like some other parts that I forgot that I even had had played and stuck those in there too so it was kind of cool it kind of it just made it a, a fresh approach to, to the song do you remember if you can think back do you remember why you guys went with um, Tom Worman versus Bo Hill was it like a scheduling thing or do you remember what happened um, hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly why, but um, I think I think the record company usually had like a these suggestions on who to use. But I think also, I mean, Bo did a great job on Midnight Dynamite, but I think at the end of it, it was so. <laughs> Maybe it was so stressful or something. I don't know. For some reason, Donnie decided he didn't want to use Bo again. And uh, and you know, Tom Worman's done some great records. In the you know, he, he, some classic records. So when his name came up, we jumped on it. So I was I was reading about uh, some things that happened during this album. And one thing that kind of surprised me was the label didn't really want to do anything with "Don't Close Your Eyes." And then it was, I think it was Alan Niven, uh, GNR and Great White's manager that kind of went to bat for you guys and, and got, got that to be a single. Um, wonder what was going on there. Why did, why did the label not want to put out that song? Because it's a, you know, it's kind of power ballady. Right. Yeah. It was surprising. But, uh, yeah, we had been touring. Like that record came out in September 88. And, and I guess I'm trying to remember when the Tesla White or it was a Tesla Great White tour we were on. I think it was like the following October. So the the record had been out a year already, and they had released you know several singles. I think um, uh, well, Cold Blood, Blow My Fuse, and Get It While It's Hot. Yep. So I think that was kind of their thing. You know, after three singles, that they're kind of done with it. And uh, and they even told us that after that Tesla Great White tour that that we had to start thinking about the next record and they weren't going to dump any more tour support money into the thing. So, you know, we were on that tour and we're playing every night and, and Alan Niven was there. And he, he uh, there was one show we did where, where our manager was there too. And... and um, and Alan went up to our manager Mark Fuma, and he goes, uh, he goes, why is that song not a single? And and 
and Mark explained to him, he said, well, the record company's done with the record and, you know, they want us to move on and start thinking about the next one. And, and uh, Alan Niven goes, you know, they'd be crazy not to release that song. He goes, you mind if I talk to them? And, and our manager says, yeah, sure, go ahead. <laughs> Be my guest. And at that time, you know, he was not only managing Great White, but he also was managing Guns N' Roses. So he had a lot of pool. So people would listen to him. So he went to Atlantic and he, and he suggested it. He says, you know, you'd be crazy not to release that song. So they, they actually, uh, listened to him and they, and they released it. And it just, it, it you know, it just took off. <laughs> it was like crazy. And, uh, you know, it, it almost didn't happen, which is, which is really crazy. <laughs> And you know what else is crazy, too, when you think about it, is here's a guy going to bat for you, and he really has no stake in it whatsoever. I mean, that's kind of a nice uh, gesture, really, you know? Yeah, it is. But it just goes to show you, too, that he had a good ear. You know, he he, he heard it. <laughs> you know, I've done a lot of different interviews with people, and a lot of times what people will say is that the labels get it wrong. And they get it wrong a lot. Do you believe that? Oh, yeah, yeah, they did with us. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, it, some of the previous albums you guys did were a little bit more eclectic. So, was there a conscious effort to go a little bit more straightforward on Blow My Fuse? Or? Uh, no, I think it just, um, you know, Donnie was the the main songwriter. And I just think, you know, over the years, his his writing sort of just evolved. And, and that's what it evolved into at that time. You know, you can see the progression as we went. It, it, you know the first record, it, it plus the you know the year that it that it was in too is you know all that stuff. What, whatever was happening at the time obviously influenced the sound. So you know I think that's why that sounded like that. We didn't really have a well, we did kind of have our own sound, but it was more like um, we weren't trying to follow the trends as much. But I guess they did still influence the sound. Do you uh, you got a favorite song on Blow My Fuse? Um, yeah, well, I think, I mean, we've played it to death, but I think, uh, especially for playing live, I love playing, um, um, Cold Blood. Yeah, that's a just great Because one. it's, yeah, it's just a straight ahead, you know, mid-tempo, not, well, a little up-tempo, but a little above mid-tempo, and it's easy to play, and it always sounds good. It's, it's consistent. And, you know, we can run around and not think about it and still make it sound great. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a plus. Uh, you know, I always like Blow My Fuse because I just feel like it's got that real pop when the chorus kicks in, it's real powerful. You know, I just, and it's catchy. It's that, That's probably my favorite. Yeah, that's, uh, was well, definitely a classic. And that, that intro, the whole intro, uh, the way the chords are, are picked out are, are pretty cool too. It's pretty cool. Donnie actually came up with that whole thing. It's like, Sometimes he'll, he'd come up with something and he'd come and show me, and I go, "Wow, how'd you think of that?" <laughs> <laughs> so when, when you th so he was like the main songwriter during the you know y your main uh, first few albums there. But what about the rest of you guys? Did you guys write and it just didn't get used, or what happened? Yeah, we all we all wrote and we all contributed. Like if you if I have a whole a whole uh, suitcase full of demo tapes. And if you dig through there, you, you find all, you know, all of us had songs on all those demos. But, um, 
but Donnie's songs were just so much better. And the thing was with Donnie, he had so many. Like for every one song that I'd come up with, he'd have ten. <laughs> and then his were his were like way better. So we'd end up working on his songs at, at rehearsal, you know. And and everybody else's songs sort of got stuck on the back burner. And Steve was actually the only one that would actually uh, he'd kind of stand up to it and, and you know kind of negotiate and get one of his songs on there. So, you, you know, you can tell, like, he, he he got at least one song on every record. But. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? You can look at a lot of different bands, and you see that that's pretty common. If you look at Motley Crue, for example, I mean, Nicky Six, bass player, he wrote pretty much all of the songs. And, and, it, yeah. and I get it. You know, like, if the songs are great, I think it's smart to use the best songs, so it doesn't really matter who writes them. But then I guess as a that's- fan, I'm always curious to see, well, what – What's you know what's Brian's musical vision or or what's Vince Neil's musical vision because you don't really get to see it when one guy is the main writer you know what I mean? Right, and and that's the other thing too. I mean, I wrote I've got a bunch of songs that I never even took to the band just because they're not kick songs. Right, and and um and that's the thing you know I have uh, you know I have a lot of different tastes and I and I don't really write in one style. I kind of bounce all over the place so. You know, if I came up with a song that sounded like it could be a kick song, that's that's when I would take it and we'd do a demo of it or something. But uh, I, I think that's the main reason. It, it's it's almost like um, Donnie's style ended up being the sound of the band, really. Right, right. Well, I've talked to uh, two two bands that came to mind. For example, uh, I was I think it was guys from Tiger Tales and Rocks Gang. They both said. They were they loved Midnight Dynamite. They loved what you guys were doing. They loved what Bo Hill was doing. So even though that wasn't like your biggest album, I feel like it influenced a lot of people. That album. Yeah, it did, and I think, um, I, you know, I think you know, our first record was it had its own sound, but you know, it was kind of like um, it was un- undeveloped, kind of raw, and then. Uh, the second record was where the record company tried to push us more in of like a pop single uh, direction, and then I think that third one was where we finally came into our own sound. That, that's the way I look at it, and it's almost like uh, like if you listen, not to compare us to the Rolling Stones or anything, but if you listen to like the old Rolling Stones, you know they they went through all those years of playing cover songs, and then they. You know, then they were sort of bouncing around trying to find their sound and kind of following in the Beatles' footsteps a little bit, you know. But when they finally broke away and just did their own thing, it was like Beggar's Banquet was when they finally kicked in. It was like, oh, you know, that's what they're supposed to sound like. And that's the way I feel like Midnight Dynamite was for us. You know, we finally got to that point where, you know, we found our sound. Isn't it crazy though when you think of so, like okay so for you guys you're saying you basically it took like three albums to really get where you were supposed to go and then you just built on it and got it bigger and then look at other bands somebody like Guns N' Roses you know they come out of the gate and and they're there they are uh, a lot of people look at Kiss's debut the same way it is funny like sometimes like certain bands it's a build up and then other bands are like hitting you right in the face first album right yeah that's true it's it, it's weird how that happens but I mean it could be the time era too you know. Because we, you know, we started really early before all those other bands, a lot of the other bands, and 
you know, and just it kind of evolved along the way. And, and when Guns N' Roses hit, it was kind of mid, more mid eighties, yeah. eighty four, I guess. And uh, yeah, they did. I mean, they had their sound right off the bat. That it, that is kind of cool, and I guess that's why that record just exploded like it did. But then, you know, sometimes it has, you know, negative effects on the band. Like like you know, they just seem like they just blew up too too fast, too soon, and. And it kind of um, is like a bright star burning out, you know? Yeah, I mean, you look at anybody who's had those huge, huge debuts, and they never can match them again. You know what I mean? Hootie and the Blowfish is another one that comes to mind. I think, not that I was a fan, but, but they were they came out real big, and then it was just, it's always kind of downhill from there. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, because you got to look at that and go, well, how are we going to top this? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's hard. It's hard to do that. And then you're, then you're overthinking, you know what I mean? You're overthinking it, trying to surpass it, where when you have a, a nice trajectory where you're kind of just building it up, you, you're kind of fighting. You're, you're trying to get to something where if you come out right out of the gate like that, and then where do you go? You know, it's just nowhere to go. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so for like for us, it was a blessing in disguise because it let us evolve naturally instead of trying to force it, yeah. So if you get to 1991, uh, Hot Wire comes out, and and obviously times are changing, um, but that was still a successful album. What were things starting to come apart at that point? Uh, no, not not really, not not till later. But uh, no, that record we thought we had really high hopes for that record because of Blum, the success of Blow My Fuse, right? So. You know, musically, I think that's even a better record. You know, I think that's the that was the next like step in the evolution <laughs> of our sound, and and uh, and we expected it to be bigger because we thought, oh, finally, like this one's gonna do it because Blow My Fuse was just almost there, but didn't quite make it. You know, we wanted to just break through and be a huge band, and uh, it, you know, timing was not on our side. Yeah. But uh yeah, that one it was funny cuz uh two times in our career it was almost like this um the same thing happened at the same time. Uh back uh in the Cool Kids days when we we recorded Cool Kids and that was the the pop album that the record company wanted us to do wanted us to do. We were just finishing up we were on the the, the final mixes. And uh, and our A and R guy from from Atlantic comes down to to sit in on the mixes and listen. And he gets there and he pulls his cassette out of his pocket and he goes, he goes, oh, I want you guys to hear this. It's it's the it was like a uh, the final mixes of the the of Pyromania, mm -hmm. the Def Leppard record, and it hadn't come out yet. And he goes, he goes, listen to this, and he puts it in, and it's this big rock record. And then we listen to our little. <laughs> our little uh, pop mixing mixes and, and we're going oh man we could have done that we had all kinds of like more rock songs that we weren't allowed to use or were talked out of using and it was just we we could just see it like we knew that that was going to be a giant like success and ours was just going to sort of fall by the wayside and then the same thing happened with um, with Hotwire we got done with it, and it was just, you know, it was it was just about to be released, and we went out to have a a, a meeting with the with the uh, president of the label, 
and uh, you know he's talking about you know his plan for the record and all this stuff. And then while he's talking, he opens his desk drawer and pulls out this Nirvana CD, <laughs> and he Uh-oh. goes, "This this is the next big thing." You know, and, you know, basically telling us you just recorded the wrong thing. This is what's going to be big. <laughs> so it was it was almost the same thing that happened for Cool Kids happened for Hotwire, and and that was pretty much the beginning of the end. Yeah, I, that's funny because yeah. I I've heard that similar story with a lot of people. Because what what happened with a lot of guys probably happened with you guys too. So let, let's try to follow this uh, path. So don't don't close your eyes gets released in '89, right? Uh huh. So you figure that's when your touring starts to expand because the album's getting bigger, and that probably takes you into ninety, right? So then you're coming fresh off that. You're like, okay, let's let's build on this success. So you're kind of in that same mode. But in the meantime, while you guys are doing all that, there's something else brewing. You know what I mean? And and then it's like you've got it all ready to go, and then here it is. It's 1991, uh, Nirvana, Soundgarden, all that stuff, Pearl Jam. It's all starting to come out, and it's like, what do you do? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and yeah, it was a bummer because uh, and we were still we were still touring and and everything was still going good at that point, and they released a, a few singles off that record that did decent, and then um, it came to the ballad, and we thought, well, don't close your eyes was you know a huge hit, so this next one, uh, tear down the walls, should be even bigger because we thought it was even a better song right and uh so they were gonna release that as the you know the big ballad off the record but at that point we were we were starting to fight it because the grunge thing was moving in and power ballads were starting to to be like you know passe (laughs) you know nobody wanted to hear that stuff anymore and but they were getting ready to release that that song and we went to do a video for it and we were halfway through filming the, the, a video for that song, and we get a call from the record company telling us the, the plug has been pulled. Stop it. You know, stop production. Oh. That's the end of it. We're not putting any more money into it. Wow. So that, that was the, the end of that record. You know, they just, you know, gave up. <laughs> did they, and then did you get dropped off Atlantic somewhere after that, or how'd that work? Uh, well, well, actually, Hotwire was on East West oh, Records, okay. which is part of Atlantic, but they switched us over to a smaller, like, subsidiary, which, you know, should have uh, worked in our to our advantage because, you know, we weren't getting lost in the whole, in the shuffle of the big Atlantic label. But, but as soon as they stuck us over there and our record came out, the label itself started having problems. And, uh, in fact, they had, um, it was a two, two, kind of a two-sided label. They had, um, a rock side of it and they had a R&B side of it. Like they had En Vogue, that, that yeah, band was yeah. on. So they had co, uh, CEOs. They had, uh, I forget, ah, I can't even remember anybody's name. I forget the guy that, that ran the rock side. And then this woman ran the R&B sides. I think her name was Sylvia Roan or something. But uh, the guy that was doing the rock part of the of the label that was taking care of us get, ended up getting fired. So the woman that was doing the R&B part of the label took over the whole label. And then she didn't know what to do with us after that. <laughs> so 
Yeah, it was just, just a big disaster. And then, yeah, soon after that, we decided, like, our contract was coming up, coming to the, to the end of the contract. And um, and we owed a lot of money at that point because we had put out all those records and never really recouped. Right. So we were, like, uh, a couple million in debt by that point. So um, we thought, well, if we get off of this label, you know, we can get out out from under that debt. Because that's what happens when you get dropped from a label. You don't have to pay it back. You just oh, nice. walk away from it. So uh, that's what we decided to do. And, and well, we had one more record we had we owed them, and that's why they put out that live record. Okay, that yeah. was our last one. Yeah. Well, like I said, that you know that was just a tough time because you know even if you guys you guys were out way before the whole hair metal thing was going, but if if you were you know if you were big in the eighties, you know when the nineties came, it was like you know. Step aside, basically. Yeah, yeah. So then, I mean, even bands. I mean, even bands like ACDC were struggling. I think during that period. Yeah, yeah. Probably the only people that I could think of, maybe Guns N' Roses and uh, Metallica, were still kind of, you know, doing it. You know what I mean? But everybody else was. And what you're right, it was tough. Yeah, I, yeah. There were a few that, that that kept it going. Well, like Metallica, though. They never relied on radio play or anything. They no. had their own thing, so sort of like their own little bubble. <laughs> so, wh- how did the uh, reunion kind of come back? How did you guys work that to get back together? Well, um, well, I left the band in '93, right, right, what, the same week that the the live record came out. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I I saw the whole thing like there was that that big build through the eighties, like we were just climbing this mountain and getting, trying to get to the top. And, and then that, when the grunge thing hit and we, it, it started to go back down. I was just, you know, I, I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't see myself going back through it on the way back down. Right. And, uh, so I kind of, I thought, well, you know, maybe I should try something different. And then I, so I started, looking around for for something else and I ended up moving out to LA in 93. So the band the band continued for I think two more years after that. So 95 they finally gave up on it too. It just sure. dwindled down to hardly anything. Like they were struggling. So they decided to to stop. And then I had, you know, and I hadn't talked to Steve. Well, I went back and did uh show business in 94 as a hired guy like I wasn't in the band anymore but I went back and recorded that record with them so that was the I, did, I recorded the record and I did three shows and that was the last time I talked to Steve at least I saw Ronnie after that but I hadn't talked to Steve in like 10 years and one day he calls me up and um, this was in in 2003 and he had he had his band funny money and they were doing shows, and Ronnie has Ronnie has this band called Blues Vultures, which he still has. So, so uh, Funny Money would play shows with with Ronnie's band, like they both do do shows together. And then at the end of the night, Ronnie would get up on stage with Steve with Funny Money because Jimmy was in that band too, and they would play kick songs. And it was like this big crowd pleaser, and and they would, the club owners would give him a bonus for doing it. So Steve called me up and he goes, hey, you know, Ronnie's been getting up with us at the end of the night and it's this big, you know, it's, 
it's this big hit and people love it. He goes, he goes, it would be really cool if, if, um, if you came out and, and, and did like this, uh, surprise appearance and jump up there with us and I could probably get some extra money for it. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, uh, you know, I said, well, that sounds kind of cool. Maybe, you know, maybe we could do that. So he put me in touch with the, with the promoter to see about my expenses to get me back there because I was out in LA and I, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of money at that point. So, um, I talked to the promoter, but unfortunately the show was already scheduled and they already had a ticket price and there was not enough in the budget to cover my travel expenses. So, um, it, that didn't happen, but that got us talking. And so Steve and I talked again and we go, and Steve was like, you know, I had asked for a certain amount. I, I, I said, well, you know, for me to travel all the way there, just to jump up and do a few songs, I said, I need this amount of money and, and they, they, they couldn't do it. So, so, um, so Steve, when Steve and I talked again, he goes, well, you know, we should all be making, you know, we should all make some money. He goes, why don't we, why don't we just put this thing back together and do a few shows and see what happens? We'll just have fun and make some money. And so that's how it happened. And it was only going to be a few shows uh, during the holidays at the end of 2003 and it was such a, a success I mean they immediately sold out of course because they were around the Baltimore area um, we ended up we made a bunch of money and we had fun and they sold out and we thought wow we should do this again <laughs> so we, you know it started out like that just these little pockets of shows we did those and we did another little bunch of shows this following September and then we did another bunch of shows that following the holidays at the end of 2004 and it just sort of progressed like that it just kept we kept filling the gaps doing more shows and more shows until we um until we got a a, a, an actual agent to book us yeah now you guys uh i mean now it's it's kind of got to be big business because you've got a lot of tours that come around that go with multiple bands You've got festivals, you've got cruises. So now it's, you know, people are kind of, the 90s are gone, right? We're getting back. We want to we wanna relive the 80s and have some of that nostalgia. So that's got to help the band right there. Yeah, yeah. And when we first did this, you know, we had no idea that all this was going to happen. And, you know, around the time that, that um, we found our, our, our booking agent, is right around when the 80s thing was taken off or maybe a year before that because I remember um, I was playing with Rhino Bucket at the time and um, we did Rock Lahoma we did it the year before Kix did it and I remember all those ba- the 80s bands and it was like man like this is a thing like Rock Lahoma was almost like the, the original 80s festival and, and, um, and it just it seemed to catch on and, 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 uh, you know, the following year is when our agent got us on, on Rocklahoma and that was our first big show outside of the Baltimore area. And, uh, and I think that just kind of spawned this whole thing where there was a bunch of different eighties festivals after that. And then all of a sudden, you know, a few, few years later, the, the monsters of rock thing started happening, those cruises. So it, it's become a thing, which is, really nice for us (laughs) yeah i mean i'm I'm, yeah (laughs) well i think hey everything comes back around again and you know that 
the rock fans are some of the most loyal fans in the world for sure yeah they are yeah and and i think you know for us we never made it huge but but we did tour a lot back in the old days and uh so we had this reputation this live reputation and there were so many people that heard about us but never got to see us and now you know they finally get to see us now and, and they were like man <laughs> you know it's like you know, i've never gotten to see you guys it's like you know that it it, it it it's it's cool that 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 can happen and the coolest thing too is a lot of these festivals you'll see like these fans from the old days and then they'll have their kids who are now like you know in their late teens so we have like multi generations coming to see us yeah, because for a younger person, if you want to get into a rock band, well, good luck finding uh, you know what I mean? a lot of ones that are in the mainstream. Don't get me wrong. I know there's a lot of cool music out there, but they're not in the mainstream. So you'd either have to really dig for it or you got to go back to the past and find guys from the 70s, 80s, you know, 90s or whatever. So it's, it's harder to find than it was back, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I can't imagine starting out now – Especially, you know, when, when I was when I was first starting, <laughs> it was way back at the beginning, and you know, you had the '50s, and then the the early '60s, and then the you know the late '60s that started evolving, and then the '70s. You know, that's when it, sort of the rock thing was happening. So there weren't that many styles to choose from. So when you when you put a band together back then, it was a lot easier to find people all on the same page because there wasn't a whole lot to choose from. But right. now it's like there's been so many different styles of music. I can't imagine like trying to find somebody that thinks the same, you know? Yeah. It's gotta be tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, hey, Brian, anything you want to say to your fans before we wrap up? Oh, well, I mean, I always love to thank the fans because that's why we're still here. If it wasn't for them, you know, I'd be working at some pet clinic somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> cleaning some dog's ears. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, ever since I was a kid, this is what I wanted to do. So it's a dream come true for me. And, and it's, it's a blessing that we can still be doing it after all these years, and we can still pull it off, too. I mean, it, it, and we're blessed because it's, it's pretty much the... the the whole band except for you know mark shanker who we still call the new guy even though he's been there longer than donnie now but, <laughs> but you know there's a lot of bands that maybe have the drummer and everybody else is different or some bands there's nobody that's original they just have the name True. which is really weird <laughs> yeah so, well, so we're it, lucky we're, we're lucky to have like almost all the, the same members and we still kind of look the same and we still play the same so it's good. Yeah, man. You guys are still kicking ass, so keep at it. Thanks a lot for the conversation, man. Have a great one. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. Well, that was an awesome interview with Brian. Hey, I hope everybody out there is safe. I hope you're doing well, and I hope you're rocking on.